Sections 27 through 34 of The Introduction of Alcanus to the Doctrines of Plato by Alcanus. Translated by George Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. 27. On the Good, and on what is the most to be honored in the things of the good, and on virtues. We must next speak in order and summarily of what has been said by the man on points of morality. The good, to be most honored and the greatest, he conceived it was not easy to discover, nor safe for those who discovered it to expose before all. To a very few, then, of his well-known friends, and those previously tried, did he give a share of his lectures on the good. If any one, however, takes up his writings carefully, he will say that he has laid down our good in the knowledge and contemplation of the primary good, which a person would call God and the primary mind. For all the things that in any way are held by man to be good, he conceived to have obtained that appellation from their participating somehow in the primary and most honored good in the manner that things sweet and hot obtain their appellations according to their participation in their primaries. But of the things that are with us, only mind and reason reached to a similitude with the very good. Hence our good is a thing honorable and venerable and divine and lovely and symmetrical and called somehow happiness but of the things that are said by the many to be good, such as health, and beauty, and strength, and wealth, and what are near to these, there is not one altogether a good, unless it meets with the use of it arising from virtue. For when these are separated, they hold merely the rank of matter, existing as an evil to those who use them evilly. And sometimes he has called even mortal things good. And happiness he conceived to exist not in human things, but in divine and blessed. From whence he said that the souls of philosophers in reality were filled with things great and wonderful, and that after the dissolution of the body they became hearthfellows with the gods, and go round with them while surveying the level plain of truth since even during the period of life they had a desire for his knowledge, and honored his pursuit above all, by which, after they are purified and revivified, as it were, some eye of the soul, that, having been previously lost and blinded, is better to be saved than ten thousand eyes, becomes able to reach the nature of all that is rational. But, on the other hand, Men without minds are likened to those who live under the earth, and who have never seen the brilliant light of the sun, but look upon some dim shadows of the substances that are with us, and conceive that they are clearly laying hold of what really exists. For, as these, when they meet with a return from darkness, and arrive at a clear light, reasonably condemn what appeared then, and themselves likewise for having been greatly deceived before, so they, 
who pass from the darkness in which they have lived to things that are truly divine and beautiful will despise what was previously viewed by them with wonder and they will have a more violent desire for the contemplation of the last mentioned and for them it is all in harmony to say that the honourable is the only good and that virtue is self-sufficient for happiness but why the good consists in the knowledge of the first being and is honourable has been made manifest through the whole of his compositions but in what relates to the good by participation he explains somehow in this manner in the first book of the laws good things are twofold some relating to man others to the gods and so on now if there is anything separated from virtue it is without a share in the existence of the first and yet this is called by the senseless a good and to him who has this plato says in the euthydemus there is a greater evil and that he considered virtues to be chosen for their own sakes we must take as a thing that follows through his considering what is honourable as the only good now this very thing is shown in very many dialogues and especially in the whole of the republic for he thinks that the person who possesses the before-mentioned knowledge is the most fortunate and most happy not on account of the honours which by being such he will receive nor on account of other rewards but that even if he lives in obscurity amongst all men and there happen to him what are said to be evils such as disfranchisement and exile and death he will nevertheless be happy but on the other hand that he who possesses with the exception of this knowledge everything considered a good such as wealth and great kingly power and health and strength and beauty of body will not be at all more happy to all which he placed as an end that was to follow a similarity to god as far as is possible now he takes this in hand in various ways at one time he says as in the theatetus that to be prudent and just and holy is a similarity with god and hence it is meet to endeavour to fly as quickly as possible thither from hence for that flight is a similarity to god as far as is possible and that it is a similarity likewise to become just and holy with prudence at another time he says as in the last book of the republic that to be just alone is so for never is that person at least neglected by the gods who shall be willing to be ready to become just and by making virtue his pursuit to be assimilated to god as far as it is possible for a man to be but in the phaedo he says that to be prudent and just is to have a similarity with a god in these words are not says he those the most fortunate and blessed and proceeding to the best place who make the virtue relating to the people and the state their pursuit which persons call temperance and justice at another time he says that the end of life is assimilated with god and another it is to follow god as when he states now god 
as the old saw says, contains the beginning and end, and so on. At another time, both, as when he says, but the soul that follows God and is likened to him, and so on. For the beginning of utility is the good, and this is said to be from God. The end, therefore, would follow upon the beginning, or on the being assimilated to God, that God, to wit, who is in heaven, or, by Zeus, above heaven, and who does not possess virtue, but is better than it. From whence one would correctly say that misery is the evil-doing of a presiding genius, but happiness the good-doing, and that we shall arrive at the being assimilated to God by making use of a fitting nature, and morals, and of conduct according to law, and perception according to nature, and, what is the chief of all, of reason and instruction, and the handing down of contemplation, so that we may, for the most part, stand aside from human affairs, and be ever busied in those perceived by mind. Now, the previous sacrifice to, and previous cleansing for, the deity within us, if we are about to be initiated into the greater subjects of learning, would be through music, and arithmetic, and astronomy, and geometry, while we are taking care at the same time of the body by means of the gymnastic art which puts bodies into a state well prepared for war and peace. 28. What is virtue, and how virtues are divided by Plato? While virtue is a thing divine, it is itself a constitution of the soul, perfect and the best, by causing a man to be with a good habit, and firm and consistent in speaking and acting, as regards both himself and others. But of its forms, some are under reason, some are not. For as the irascible, the rational, and the concupiscible are different, so different too would be the complete state of each. Now the perfection of the rational part is prudence, of the irascible fortitude, but of the concupiscible temperance. Now prudence is a knowledge of things good and bad, and of what are neither the one nor the other. But temperance is a well-ordering of the soul relating to desires and longings and their obedience to the leading power. But when we say that temperance is a well-ordering and obedience, we suggest something of this kind, that there is a power according to which the longings are in a well-regulated and obedient state, as regards that which is naturally the master, namely the rational power. But fortitude is a power preservative of a lawful dogma, dreadful or not dreadful, that is, a power preservative of a lawful dogma. But justice is a certain agreement on the part of these with each other, being a certain power according to which the three parts of the soul agree and harmonize with each other, and each performs its own office according to its worthiness, that there may be a completion of three combined virtues, prudence, fortitude, and temperance, while reason is the ruler, 
and the rest of the parts of the soul are kept down according to their own peculiarities by reason and by their being obedient to its reign from whence we must conceive that these virtues follow each other in turn for as fortitude is preservative of a lawful dogma so it is of right reason for a lawful dogma is a kind of right reason but right reason comes from prudence moreover prudence stands as an ally with fortitude for it is the knowledge of good things now no one is able to see what is good while it is rendered obscure by cowardice and the feelings that follow upon cowardice and nearly in the same manner a person is unable to act with prudence in union with intemperance or generally through being subdued by any feeling and if he does anything contrary to right reason plato says that he suffers thus through ignorance and folly so that he would not be able to possess prudence while he is intemperate and a coward the perfect virtues therefore are thus inseparable from each other twenty nine on virtues and vices and further how each of them are distinguished in another way likewise there are what are called virtues such as good natural qualities and a progress towards them that have an appellation similar to their perfections through a similarity with them thus for instance we call certain soldiers brave and sometimes we say that certain persons are brave although they are thoughtless while we are taking into account virtues that are not perfect now the perfect virtues have neither an extension nor remission vices however admit both of extension and remission for one person is more thoughtless and more unjust than another and yet vices do not follow each other for some are opposites which cannot exist around the same person for such is the state of boldness as compared with cowardice and extravagance with a love of money since it is really impossible for a man to exist who is laid hold of by every kind of vice for neither can the body possess in itself all the evils of the body we must therefore admit a certain intermediate state neither bad nor good for all men are not either entirely good or bad since such are those who are making a progress to a sufficient good for it is not easy to pass immediately from vice to virtue since there is a great interval between extremes from each other and an opposition and we must consider that some virtues lead and others follow and that the leaders are those which are in the portion influenced by reason from whom the rest obtain their perfection but the followers are those in the portion affected by suffering for these work out what is right not according to the reason that is in them for they have it not but according to that which is bestowed upon them by prudence and generated by custom and practice and since neither sciences nor arts exist in any other part of the body except the rational alone the virtues connected with that which is affected by suffering are not to be taught because there are neither arts nor sciences for they do not possess a peculiar contemplation prudence however as being a science 
imparts to each subordinate virtue its own peculiarity, just as the pilot gives to the sailors certain orders not contemplated by them, and they obey him, and the same reasoning applies to a soldier and a general. Since, then, vices admit of extension and remission, the sins arising from them would be not equal, but some greater and others less, and, consequently, some are punished more and others less by lawgivers. But, though virtues are extremes, through their being perfect and similar to what is straight, they would be, in another way, means, through their being seen about all, or the most of them, two vices, one on each side, in excess and deficiency, as in the case of liberality there is on one side parsimony, on the other extravagance. For in such circumstances there is a want of moderation, according as what is becoming is either in excess or deficiency. For neither would a person be apathetic, who, when his parents are assaulted, is not angry, nor would he be moderately affected, who is angry at everything, even of a common kind, but quite the contrary. Again, in like manner, he who is not pained when his parents die is apathetic, while he who is affected excessively, so as to waste away by grief, is immoderately affected, but he who suffers this pain in moderation is moderately affected. Moreover, he who dreads everything and beyond moderation is a coward, but he who fears nothing is bold, while he who is moderate in things of fear and boldness is brave. And the same reasoning applies to other cases. Since, then, moderation in all affections is the best, and nothing else is moderate but what is a mean between excess and deficiency, on this account virtues are of this kind, through a mediocrity, because they cause us to be in a medium state in affections. 30. How virtue is a voluntary thing, but vice an involuntary one. Since there is, if anything else, what is in our power and without a master, virtue is likewise a thing of this kind. For what is honorable would not be an object of praise if it were from nature or a divine lot, Virtue, therefore, will be likewise a voluntary thing, existing according to some impulse, fiery and noble and permanent. From virtue, then, being voluntary, it follows that vice is involuntary. For who would willingly choose to have in the best part of himself, and in the most worthy of honor, the greatest of ills? But if anyone rushes on to vice, in the first place he will rush on, not as to vice itself, but as to a good thing. And if a person improperly stretches himself onward altogether to viciousness, such a person has been deceived, as having been about to reap a greater good at a distance from home by means of some lesser ill, and in this way he will arrive at it unwillingly. For it is impossible that a person should wish to rush on to what are ills in themselves, with neither the hope of some good, nor the fear of a greater ill. Whatever wrongs, then, a bad man does, are involuntary. Since, then, a wrong is involuntary, the doing an injustice is still more an involuntary act, 
by how much the greater ill it would be for that person to be active in doing an injustice than for injustice to keep itself quiet. And yet, although acts of injustice are involuntary, we must punish the doers of injustice differently. For different are the mischiefs done, and the involuntariness lies either in ignorance or some suffering. Now, all of these it is permissible to turn aside by reasoning, and urbanity in conduct and care. So great an ill, then, is injustice, that to act unjustly is a thing more to be avoided than to suffer unjustly. For the former is the work of a bad man, but the latter is the suffering of a weak one, and both is a base thing. But to act unjustly is so much the greater ill as it is the baser thing and it is an advantage to him who acts unjustly to undergo punishment, as it is to a person diseased to give up his body to a physician to cure. For all punishment is a cure for a soul that has sinned. 31. What are affections, and on their distinctions? But since most virtues are conversant with affections, let us define what kind of a thing is an affection. Now, an affection is an irrational movement of the soul, as regards either an ill or a good. And a movement has been called irrational because affections are neither decisions nor opinions, but movements of the irrational portions of the soul. For in the part of the soul, subject to affections, there exist things which, although they are our works, are nevertheless not in our power. They are, however, frequently produced in us, when not willing and resisting. Sometimes, too, while knowing that what have fallen on us are neither painful, nor pleasant, nor fearful, we are not the less led by them. What we should not have suffered had these affections been the same as decisions. For the latter we reject, when we condemn them, whether fittingly or not fittingly, for a good or for an ill, since on the appearance of an indifferent thing an affection is not put into motion, for all affections exist according to the appearance of a good or an ill. For if we imagine that a good is present, we are pleased, and if it is about to be, we desire it. But if we imagine that an ill is present, we are pained, and what is about to be, we fear. For there are two affections, simple and elementary, namely pleasure and pain, and from these the rest are formed. For we must not number with these fear and desire as being of the nature of principles and simple. For he who fears is not entirely deprived of pleasure, since if a person has existed through a time that may have happened, while despairing of a release from, or an alleviation of, the ill. He abounds, however, in being pained and troubled, and on this account he is united to pain, and he who desires, while remaining in the expectation of obtaining his wish, is pleased. But, as he is not completely confident, nor has a firm hope, he is weighed down. Since then desire and fear are not of the nature of principles, it will be conceded, without a doubt, that not one of the other affections is simple, such I mean as anger, and regret, and jealousy, 
and such like. For in these pleasure and pain are seen, mixed up as it were in a manner with them. But of affections, some are of a wild kind, others of a tame. Now the tame are such as exist in man according to nature, being both necessary and proper, and they are in this state while they preserve some measure. But when there is found in them a want of measure, they then become deviations from right. Of such a kind are pleasure, pain, anger, pity, shame. For it is proper to be pleased at things that happen according to nature, but to be pained at their contraries. And anger is necessary for self-defense, and to avenge oneself upon foes. And pity is proper for a love of mankind, and shame is requisite for a retreat from things that are base. But other affections, which are contrary to nature, are of a wild kind, and arise from a perversion of mind, and improper habits. Of such a kind is excessive laughter, and a rejoicing over calamities, and a hatred of mankind, which, by being stretched out and relaxed, and existing in any state whatsoever, are deviations from right, through not receiving any moderation. And on the subject of pleasure and pain, Plato says that these affections, existing somehow naturally in us from the beginning, are put into motion and carried onward, since pain and sorrow are generated for those who are excited contrary to nature, but pleasure for those who return to their former state according to nature. Now he conceives that the state according to nature is a mean between pain and pleasure, while it is the same with neither of them, in which mean we exist for the greater portion of time. He teaches, moreover, that there are many kinds of pleasures, some felt through the body and others through the soul, and that of pleasures some are mixed with their opposites, but others remain pure and undefiled, and that some are the result of memory, and others united to hope, and that some are disgraceful, such as are unrestrained and combined with injustice, but others moderate, and participating somehow otherwise in the good, such as the good will felt towards the good, and the pleasure received from acts of virtue. But since many pleasures are naturally in no repute, we must not inquire whether they can belong to the simple good. For that seems to be evanescent, and of no value, which is an after-production, not by nature, and has nothing essence-like, or that takes the lead, but is coexisting with its opposite. For pleasure and pain are mingled. Now, this would not have happened if one, namely pleasure, were a simple good, and the other, namely pain, an ill. 32. On Friendship That which is called especially and properly friendship is nothing else than what exists according to a reciprocal kind feeling. Now this takes place when each party wishes equally that his neighbor and himself should do well and this equality is not otherwise preserved than through a similarity in manners, for like is friendly to like, when they are in moderation, but when they are immoderate, they can suit neither each other nor what are moderate. There are, likewise, some other friendships so considered, 
but not, however, really being so, that receive a color as it were from virtue, such as the natural friendship of parents towards their offspring, and of relations towards each other, and that which is called political and sociable. But these do not always have a reciprocity of kind feelings. There is likewise an amatory kind of friendship. Now, of the amatory, one kind is well-behaved, as being that for a virtuous soul, but another ill-conducted, as being for a vicious soul. And there is an intermediate kind for that which is of a medium disposition. For, as there are three states of the soul in a rational living being, one good, another bad, and a third between those two, so there will be three amatory states, differing from each other in kind. Now that they are three, their aims point out especially by differing from each other. For the bad is the love of the body alone, through its being overcome by what is pleasant, and this is after the manner of beasts. But the well-behaved is for the sake of the naked soul, in which there is seen a fitness for virtue. But the intermediate has a longing for the body, and a longing likewise for the beauty of the soul. He too, who is worthy to be loved, is himself a mean, as being neither ill-conducted nor well-behaved, from whence we must call the love that lays claim to the body some daimon rather than a god who has never been generated in an earthly body, and is the conveyor of what is sent by the gods to man, and conversely. The amatory, then, being thus commonly divided into the three kinds before mentioned, the one which relates to the love of the good, being freed from an affection, becomes a thing of art, from whence it is placed in the rational portion of the soul, and its contemplations are to know the person worthy to be loved, and to possess and make use of him, and further to judge of him from his propensities and impulses, whether they are noble, and tending to what is honourable, and whether they are violent and fervid, and he who strives to possess it shall possess it, not by rendering delicate or praising the object of his love, but by repressing it rather, and showing that by a person being in the state he is now, life is not to be lived. And when he gets the party loved into his power, he will make use of him, after having enjoined the things through which he will, after being practised in them, become perfect. And the end to them will be that instead of a lover and a beloved, they will become friends. 33. On the Forms of Polity Of polities, Plato says that some exist in reality, but some are supposed to exist, such as he has detailed in the Republic. For in that treatise he has depicted the former as unwarlike, but the latter as being in a feverish state and warlike, while seeking which of these would be the best, and how they should be constituted. And it is there that, nearly alike to the division of the soul, is a polity divided into three parts, relating to the guardians and aiders and operatives, to the first of which he assigns the counselling and ruling power, to the second that of fighting for the state, if need be, 
who are to be put into order according to the principle of anger, as if they were the allies of the rational principle. But to the last he assigns arts, and the rest of handicrafts. And he conceives it right for the rulers to be philosophers, and contemplative of the primary good, for they alone will administer all things properly, for never will human affairs cease from ills unless philosophers become kings, or those who are called kings become from some divine allotment truly philosophers. For states will act the best, and with justice at that time, when each portion of it is under its own law, so that the rulers may consult for the people, and the co-fighters be their servants and fight in their behalf, while the rest follow them obediently. And, he says, there are five kinds of polities. The first, an aristocracy, when the best are in power. The second, a timocracy, where those fond of honors are the rulers. The third, a democracy, and after this, an oligarchy, and the last, a tyranny, which is the worst. He depicts likewise other polities, hypothetically, of which there is that in the laws, and that too after correction in the epistles, of which he makes use for the states that are laboring, as mentioned in the laws, under a disease, and possessing a region bounded off, and persons selected from every age, so that according to the differences in their nature and places there may be a need of peculiar instruction, and of bringing up, and of using arms. For they, who are near the sea, would apply themselves to navigation and to naval battles, while those dwelling inland would be fitted for fighting on foot, and the use of arms, either the lighter, like mountaineers, or the heavier, like persons living on hilly plains, and some would practice cavalry exercise. But in this state he does not lay down by laws that women are to be in common. Political virtue is therefore contemplative and practical, and that which chooses to make a state good and happy, and of one mind, and of one voice, and it enjoins commands, and has under it the science of war, and generalship, and law judgments. For political science considers ten thousand other matters, and especially this very one, whether we must engage in war or not. 34. On the Sophist. It has been stated before what kind of person is the philosopher. From him the sophist differs, first in manner, in that he is the seeker of pay from young persons, and is willing to be considered a person with bodily and mental accomplishments rather than to be so. And secondly, in matter, in that the philosopher is conversant with things existing forever and in the same state, while the sophist busies himself about that which is not, and retires to a spot difficult to be seen on account of its darkness. For to that which is, that which is not, is not opposed. For the latter is unsubstantial and unintelligible, nor has it any basis, and which, if a person were compelled to speak of, or to think upon, he would be overthrown, through his bringing a battle around himself. Now, that which is not, as far as it is understood, is not a naked negation of what is, but it is with a joint meaning 
as regards another thing, which follows upon the primary being, so that unless these two had participated in that which is not, they would not have been separated from the others. But now, as many soever as are the beings that are, so many times is the being which is not. For that which is a not-being is not a being. So much it suffices to be said for an introduction to the doctrine-making of Plato, of which a part has been stated in an orderly manner, but a part dispersedly, and in no order, so that it is in the power of any one, from what has been said, to become contemplative and detective of the rest of his doctrines by following out these. End of section 34 and end of The Introduction of Alcanus to the Doctrines of Plato